Mr. thought it was white boy day. <laughs> yeah? It ain't white boy day, is it? Oh, man, it ain't white boy day. <laughs> Shit, man, you done fucked up again. Well, well, well. Look at what we got here. Clarence Horley? <laughs> it sounds almost like your name. I don't know where you live. 4900160 Street, apartment 48. And I make a million dollar bet that Alabama's at the same address. Marty, take the car, go get it. I'll bring a dumb ass back here. I think I keep love a boy here entertained. Hey, Marty! What the fuck are you doing? I'm gonna find my jacket! What the fuck are you doing? Hey. Get him! Get a bag and put Alabama Stage in it! When we get fucking shot! Get a bag and put Alabama Stage in it! I just did you the biggest fucking favor of your life! Open your eyes. I said open your fucking eyes! You thought it was pretty fucking funny, didn't you, huh? Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. 15 minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So we're kind of like an afternoon, you like, drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we call the full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And there's something so familiar about all of this. This is True Romance, again. From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Hello, baby! Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. <laughs> a con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? No con, tell him we gotta go. A call girl. Huh? Ah! I'm out of here. She a four-line fire or what? She seems very nice. What are you doing in L.A. anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Now, all that stands between them and their wildest dreams. Find out who this wing and a prayer artist is and take him off at the neck. Are 60 cops, 40 agents. He's a wild man, this kid Clarence. I like him. 30 mobsters. I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And a few thousand bullets. We're all gonna die here. These are cops. 
Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken. Slow it down, man. In a Tony Scott film. I think what you did, what you did was so romantic. Not since Barney and Clyde have two people been so good at being bad. True Romance. Uh, in True Romance, a lonely regular guy falls in love with a call girl and the two go on the run to Los Angeles to live happily ever after with drugs that were taken by accident, only they don't know that the Sicilian Mafia and the LAPD are also after the drugs. Tarantino X continues with the one that technically started them all, even though it was released a year after Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> it's Tony Scott's True Romance from 1993. Again, <sighs> yeah, and I'm and I'm sure a lot of the film nerds would be like, "Yeah, he didn't direct it; it doesn't count." But to me, it counts. Like he wrote it. Oh, it it's a Tarantino movie to me. Tarantino's name is all over this movie. I mean, I personally just, I absolutely love and adore this so much. It, it hits every single feel for me every time I watch it. Uh, the cast is superb. The plot is so simple and features your everyday guy getting the girl and having all the focus on himself. The dialogue is on point. Yeah, it's not for everyone. I'll admit that much, but it's definitely for me. You know? And Yeah, me too. Uh, just, I was going to say, for a disclaimer, when I was younger, this was my favorite of Tarantino's, even though he didn't direct it, this was my favorite film, like over Pulp Fiction and... Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs when I was younger uh, that changed but uh, this was my favorite for a while Drew Romance yeah there's something about this movie that just still just sticks to me I just I'm still really just enthralled with this film every time I watch it um, I admit I was you know kind of tardy to the film but uh, more on that in a bit and I'm really glad that I'm able to do this again and actually talk with someone because this was, if for those of you who don't know, this was the first episode, True Romance, when I first started the film effect by myself uh, a year and a half ago. This was episode one, so it's funny that it's episode 99 again. But uh, yeah, that's the whole thing. Uh, we knew going into this year that this episode was going to be happening because you know it's. This is Tarantino Triple X, the 30th anniversary of his career. And we're covering us every film of his filmography, one a month. Technically, this is the May movie, but, uh, you know, whatever. We're a couple days late. <laughs> and, um, yeah, this, this film, like you said, it's very much a Tarantino film. And if it weren't for this, we wouldn't have Reservoir Dogs. So, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm happy to revisit this one. So let's get into it. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that, you see, this is actually, uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time, uh, since my first time. So technically that's my second time. And 
I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, uh, like I said, I was late to this. I when I first started build Blockbuster twenty years ago, this was one of those movies that I rented, and uh, I, I heard about it. I was familiar with it, but for whatever reason, I just never seen it. And um, you know, I really wasn't the Tarantino fan that I am today. But uh, boy, ever since I first saw this movie, I've fucking really been into it. And uh, yeah, so how about you, Core? So for me, this was actually a sleepover rental. Um, I don't remember who was sleeping over. It might have been Tom Coffin. I think it was somebody in the neighborhood. Uh, but I remember uh, I was having somebody over, so my parents took us up to Blockbuster and I had kept hearing about uh, Tarantino. I had seen um, Pulp Fiction at this point. So, and I heard about this other movie, a True Romance. So I picked it out. Uh, I remember whoever I was with didn't want to watch it, but I ended up just by sheer force, just kind of forcing us to rent it and loving every minute of it. And both of us, we were just like blown away. I just remember like that's all we were talking about the rest of the weekend was how awesome True Romance was. I'm pretty sure it was Tom Coffin, now that I'm thinking about it, who stayed over, but we just kept raving about it, and like I said, it was my favorite Tarantino movie, even though he didn't direct it, but it was my favorite of his work that he, you know, did for a long time, you know, up until I was a little bit older. So I just remember loving the shit out and rewatching it like three times before I returned it, because it was, uh, you know, one of those longer rentals you got back then. Tom Coffin, there's a name. <laughs> Tommy likes the Beatles. <laughs> All right, let's do the top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash from the Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Top Nation. Top five cocaine-centric films. Because why not? <laughs> Seems, uh, you know... Um... All right, I'll start. My number five is a film that we will be covering later on this month for Tarantino Triple X. And that is Jackie Brown from 1997. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that more later on this month. So, how about you, Core? Yeah, Jackie Brown's one I got to rewatch. I haven't seen that in a long time. Like, that's probably one of the Tarantino films I haven't seen the longest. Oh, really? So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah I mean, I like it, but... Um, it's just not one of my favorites of his, so I just haven't seen it in a long time. It's it's actually top tier Tarantino for me. So, but we'll we'll get into all that later on this month. Um, but anyway, my number five. Uh, even though like the whole movie isn't centered on cocaine, it has that iconic scene, and that's Boogie Nights. Um, <laughs> when you messaged me about it, I had to put Boogie Nights on there just because that scene sticks out so much. When, uh, you know, Dirk Diggler, a.k.a. Mark Wahlberg, they're trying to scam this drug dealer with baking soda and yeah, just Alfred him, Molina. Yeah, Alfred Molina. And uh, they're, they're, it's just like such a terrible plan. But like they're just in this downward spiral and just so stupid. <laughs> and it, turn, it goes so terribly. But I had to bring it up because that's like one of the first things that pops into my head. 
when you brought this topic up. So that, but I put it in number five because I know the obviously the movies that are coming have a lot more to do with cocaine, even though you know Boogie Nights, his spirals caused by cocaine, but that's not the focus of the movie. That's not what that movie's about. I mean, necessarily. Boogie Nights for sure has one of the all time like biggest downward spirals of a character. I give it that. Yeah, it's got a lot going for it. That's I love that movie so much. So it's coming, guys. It's coming. Anyway, number four for me, Bright Lights, Big City. You ever seen that movie before with uh Michael J. Fox, Kiefer Sutherland? And, uh, no, I don't even think I've heard of it before. I mean, maybe at some point I have, but it's not ringing a bell right now. Uh, yeah, it came out in '88. <clears throat> um. Based on a novel about a uh, character, you know, in the mid '80s, life in the fast lane, New York City, um, and you know, it's kind of like a guy coming up and coming. I can't remember if he worked in Wall Street. I haven't seen the film, and eh, it's been about ten years since I've seen it. But uh, yeah, I, I really did like it, um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of like it's a uh, Fast checker, yuppie kind, you know, Michael J. Fox, kind of like a, a role you wouldn't expect, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, check it out. It's a good film. Uh, but, yeah, that's my number four. So, my number four is an obvious one. Uh, you know, I think that would be on most people's list is Brian De Palma's Scarface. Um, you know, when you think of cocaine, you think of this movie – uh, do I love it as much as some other people do that have like the posters and tattoos and <laughs> quote it constantly and all that shit? Right. Now, I don't love it like that, but it is a landmark film, uh, iconic performance by Al Pacino as Tony Montoya. And it is a really good movie. I'm a huge fan of De, uh, De Palma. I've re- he's really grown on me as I've gotten older. And this movie's no exception. I mean, it's an epic um, but it's fucking awesome and badass. And, uh, this movie probably has the most metric ton of cocaine on screen you could possibly see. So of course it has to make my list at number four. Um, you know, I'm sorry. Did you call him Tony Montoya? Tony Montoya is a singer. Tony, Mon- <laughs> Tony Montana. T- Tony Montana. I was like, wait a Montoya. <laughs> wait the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> wrong guy altogether but i'll allow it anyway my number three is this film true romance uh many reasons we're gonna get into it all how about you uh great minds think like my number three is uh true romance uh, you know, th- this is another one that just popped right in my head because obviously most of the plot centers around yeah. finding the cocaine and selling it. Uh, and obviously I love this movie. So yeah, we'll get into it. But th- this one had to be number three on mine. Uh, number two for me is a film called London that I brought up on the show before. Film I knew that- you were going to put that on there. I knew, I Have knew you ever was seen be it before list. though. I have. I, I, it's okay. Yeah, it okay. was fine. Because yeah. it's just Chris Evans, Chris and, Evans Jason and Jason Statham like just yeah. doing lines of cocaine for like an hour and a half and reminiscing about shit. That's what like most the of the bathroom. film is. Yeah, they're in a bathroom at a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Um, but okay. How about you? My number two is a previous episode, and um, I share a lot of love for it too, even though I wasn't on the episode. Uh, my number two is Blow. Uh, love that movie. Love the whole true story. Um, love Johnny Depp in that. I know it has some critics. I know it maybe has some flaws, but it's just entertaining to me. I don't know. I I like that type of movie where it's like, you know, it follows his whole life and you kind of understand his motivations and sympathize for this, you know, George Jung, this George drug Young. dealer. Yeah, he's like a big, huge drug dealer, but you sympathize with him because, you know, it's understandable. He's just trying to do his job and provide and he doesn't want to hurt anybody. So great movie. I, I, I don't know why it gets, I don't say hate, but... To me, like it's it borders on classic, but a lot of people don't feel that way about that film. But to me, I love it. I, I love Blow. I've watched it a bunch of times. No, a lot of people find it to be just fine. I know Justin's one of those people, and that's okay. I mean, I love it for a lot of reasons, um, and it's my number one actually. So I might as well talk about it. Um, you know, like you said, previous episode. Uh, if, if you're curious as to what I feel or how I feel about the movie, I mean, I love it, but for more detailed thoughts, you know, check the episode out. Cause it's a really good one that uh, I did with Sean and my brother, Andrew last year. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, God, it's, it's just, I gotta go back and rewatch it. I haven't watched it since that episode, but, uh, it's, it's about time for a rewatch anyway. So what's your number one? My number one is one of my favorite movies. Um, you know, I mentioned it previously. I'm a little surprised you didn't bring it up, but my number one's Goodfellas. Um, you know, again, while the the whole focus of the movie isn't on cocaine, it plays a huge part in it. And I mean, you know, it ends up being the whole big plot point towards the end of the film and basically Henry Hill's downfall, Ray Liotta. Um, and it has one of the best cocaine scenes I think has ever been put to film. Um, you know, when he's doing and running all around right before he gets arrested, he's got to go get stuff ready to take drugs to the airport, pick up his brother, get food ready. And it's just so frantic and hectic. And Scorsese is just a master, like right there, just with the use of camera techniques and music and the acting just all comes together. And you just feel high and frantic with, um, you know, uh, Ray Liotta and Henry Hill in that situation. So I had to put it on there. Uh, Goodfellas, uh, definitely one that pops into my head and one of my favorite films of all time. Wow. Don't know why <laughs> I just totally overlooked Goodfellas completely. So, yeah. It's my show. I can do this. I'm uh, going to make it my number one's a tie now. It's officially a tie between <laughs> Blow and Goodfellas because all the reasons you said times five. Um, yeah, wow. I cannot believe I missed that one. Holy shit. And I intentionally, I, 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 I yeah, Scarface I've never been a big fan of, so that's, I intentionally didn't put that on my list. Um, but yeah, I miss Goodfellas. Goddamn. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, number one is now a tie between Blow and Goodfellas. Take that. And they both featured Ray Liotta. Rest in peace. Cheers. That's my little tribute to him that I just snuck into this episode. Ha <laughs> ha. Before we uh, 
get into this. I'm doing something on the air. I'm trying something for the first time. This is, and by no means are they sponsored, sponsoring the show, obviously. Dr. Pepper Dark Berry Limited Edition <laughs> Flavor. So, yeah, let's see how that's how. Let's see. Have you had this yet? Now, I'm not a huge fan of uh, like the berry flavored stuff as far as soda. I'm not a fan but, of Dr. I mean, Pepper. I'm not. I I saw yeah. that. I I tried their uh, Dr. Pepper berries and berries. Uh, Dr. Pepper um, like uh, cream cream soda. And I like cream soda. I do like too, just, but it's cream soda and fucking Dr. Pepper together. It's like a half and half situation, and it's like yeah. I still get that bitter Dr. Pepper taste with it, and I'm like, eh. No. <laughs> I'm I'm simple. I I mean, I mainly just drink Coke if I'm drinking soda, which I drink a lot of soda, but right. probably more than I should. But uh, I drink Coke, and then I mix in like an occasional Sprite. Or every once in a while, cream soda, like I said. Uh, but yeah, I'm not a huge fan of like the berry type flavors or cherry stuff like that. But I might give it a try. I've never heard of it. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I should let people know. I haven't even told you this. If if I'm if I sound off or different tonight, it's because it's kind of like hard for me to talk because I'm like I have like a sensitive tooth right now because of like I told you what's going on with uh my my this my mouth and shit right now with like dental stuff and uh there's like a canker sore that's that's healing and it's like made my tooth like really sensitive and like when I talk like the vibration like it's just it triggers it and like I don't know it's weird it's hard to explain so I'm trying to talk differently <laughs> or or just softly than a norm, a norm, more softer than I normally talk, if that makes sense. So <laughs> just turn the gain up; you'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, before we get into this, let's try this uh, dark berry shit. And I should also mention that I heard, I heard that this was like a Canadian flavor, apparently, but it's here in the states limited. Like for they're doing a promotion for Jurassic World. I don't know what berries have to do with Jurassic World, but uh, okay. Because they were the highest bidder. <laughs> That's I, I, why. I guess. Here we go. Let's try this. It's literally Dr. Pepper with a berry aftertaste. Talking about uh, weird soda flavors while you're tasting that. Did you ever try the Coke that had the coffee in it? I missed that. It was like called Coke I did. Black or something like they still, that. We still I love that. They still sell it. Oh, they make it again? They stopped making it for a while. You're talking I about the coffee, the, the Coke with coffee? Yeah. Yeah, they still make it. Well, they stopped for a while. They must have restarted at some point. Mm. I don't know. But <laughs> now I want to try that because I... I I drank it when um it was like when I was in college I used to pound those things and I would like get a head. Oh, that 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 that. Okay, they actually do make like like a coke with like infused with like coffee beans and stuff in like a can. But I know what you're talking about now. That gets it was like all like the whole bottle was black and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what do you think? That. Uh, I, I I described it already. Uh, it's it's just that it's that 
disgusting Dr. Pepper taste with a, with a berry aftertaste, aftermath. That's, that's exactly what better. it is. <laughs> no, it's, you know, I'm going to finish this throughout the episode, but I'm not going to fucking go out of my way to buy it. <laughs> Thank God I have to get the bottle, the, the, the 20 ounce bottle and not the 12 pack of cans. Cause I was going to get that and say, fuck it. But yeah, glad I didn't do that. <laughs> I was stocking up on crystal Pepsi when they had that back. Yeah. I don't like regular Pepsi. I like me some Crystal Pepsi, though. I just don't like anything that's really Pepsi-related. I mean, my Madeline loves Dr. Pepper. I mean, not Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew. I think that's a generational thing. I think, like, the kids that were born slightly after us grew up, like, like loving Mountain Dew. Yeah, is that, and, like, like, Surge that was the gamer shit when we situ- were kids. That, it's, like, gamer generation. Yeah, like Surge was the shit when we were younger. Surge and um, what was that called? Um, oh my god! Like it was like the double the caffeine and shit, or triple, quadruple the caffeine with Jolt Cola, Jolt Cola. Jolt, yeah. Now that probably has <laughs> the same amount of caffeine as like a quarter of a Red Bull. I remember me, <laughs> you, and Mets would walk up to Giant because that was the only place that had Jolt Cola, and we'd buy it from there and drink it, <laughs> thinking we were big and bad. <laughs> yeah, nowadays they got like the the fucking energy alcoholic energy drink shit, like <laughs> make us look like bitches back then. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let's talk about true romance. Again, <laughs> um, let me get to it. <laughs> Were you at least able to like recycle your notes? <laughs> like, yeah, hey, yeah, I remember all this. Well, I don't save my notes, so you know, once I record an episode, I'll just because all my notes are saved on my phone in my notes section, <clears throat> and I'll just you know um, delete them in favor of the next episode after we're done recording. So, I do not save my notes, unfortunately. Here we go! Alright, so the background of the film, I did dig that up a little bit because there's more to it than what meets the eye. Um, it, it began with a 50-page script by Roger Avery titled The Open Road, and Avery described the plot as being about an odd couple relationship between an uptight businessman and an out-of-control hitchhiker who travel into a hellish Midwestern town together. When he had trouble finishing it, he asked his friend and fellow video archives clerk Quentin Tarantino to give it a shot. After several weeks, Tarantino handed in over 500, I'm sorry, over 500 handwritten pages of what Avery described as the Bible of pop, of pop culture. Roger typed and edited the behemoth, working with Quentin on further story ideas. According to a film threat article from 1994, the final script was a combination of this movie and Natural Born Killers from 1994. Reportedly, it followed Quentin's original Natural Born Killer script 
until after the prison riot. After escaping, Mickey and Mallory decided, decided to find and kill the screenwriter who wrote the glitzy Hollywood movie about their exploits. The writer goes on the run, and True Romance was the movie he writes while trying to evade the two psychotic killers. It was told in trademark Tarantino chapter fashion out of chronological order when it became obvious that the miniseries-length script would never sell. This, he asked, but the two stories in the two separate films. And uh, this is kind of just trivial, trivial information. Um, so when they were filming the movie, Tarantino, since you know he's the writer, of course, he never visited this the uh, the set. It's one thing he did not do. Um. He wrote the uh, roles of Clarence in Alabama with actors Robert Carradine and Joan Cusack in mind. Now, I've heard about Joan Cusack over the years. The Robert Carradine thing was news to me when I found that out. And for those wondering how much Tarantino sold the script for, there's a bunch of figures kicking around. The figure from the best, from, from the source with the most cred that I could find was 30, 30, 33000 $33,000. It was um, apparently before Tony Scott came on board, it was originally going to be directed by William Lustig, the old director from like Maniac and, and shit like that from the 80s. <clears throat> but he wasn't ready to take this leap. So with that money, would eventually become Reservoir Dogs and the rest, as they say, is history. Tarantino wrote the screenplay for True Romance, but gave the project over to Tony Scott after deciding not to direct. The money received... See, that... that. Okay, never mind the Bill Lustig thing. I thought that was weird. I'm, I'm probably going to edit that one out. Because <clears throat> it also contradicts the whole Tony Scott thing, which I thought he was doing this all along. So... <clears throat> The money received, like I said, he would go on to fund Reservoir Dogs. And that would be the first of his many movies. As far as up to now, it's nine. So he's supposed to bow out at ten. So here we are. The world's still waiting, Quentin. So as for the movie itself, it kicks off with Christian Slater's Clarence at the bar. And he's raving about Elvis trying to pick up Anna Thompson from The Crow and Bad Boys. She's back in another movie that we're talking about here. They both have a common interest in wanting to fuck Elvis. He asked her to a Sonny Chiba triple feature. He's like, I got this moment here. I'm, I'm getting in with this girl. I'm going to go for the strike. What's he do? He asked her to a triple feature kung fu movie. She's turned off by the idea. So uh, she's just like, yeah, I'm going to pass and just fucking awkwardly walks off like, nope. <laughs> yeah, she just walks off. And I like uh, when she's like, you're asking me to a kung fu movie. And Clarence is like, well, I'm asking, asking you to three. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, like it's like, a triple feature. Three, dumbass. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to pass. Hard pass. Uh, I'm going to go find fun boy. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this opening dialogue was apparently uh, lifted from a monologue in Tarantino's short My Best Friend's Birthday from 1987, which, okay, I, I, I'll bite because 
let's talk about how Clarence is clearly Tarantino. He wrote this movie. It is clearly like his most autobiographical movie. Don't I mean it, it's clearly it, it, it Clarence is to a T Quentin himself. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I first saw this, I you know, the internet was around, but it wasn't like it is today. I didn't like I knew who Quentin Tarantino was. I didn't know really anything about him personally, so like I had no idea how autobiographical it is, like as far as Clarence be, the character being the same as Quentin Tarantino. I mean, shit, he only changed like a few things. Like instead of working at a video store, he worked at a comic store. You know, I, I Quentin Tarantino's famously was a virgin till he was older. Where Clarence obviously is having trouble getting laid because his boss hires a call girl. So yeah, it's just, and I think that's why I identify with the movie because I identify with Quentin Tarantino a lot as a nerd, movie nerd working at the video store, and I think that's why I love this movie so much. Just because, you know, I see myself in Clarence, see myself in Quentin Tarantino, and fucking love it. So absolutely though, yeah, Clarence is Quentin Tarantino in my opinion. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Who I think, just I think Tarantino is a, is a small part of Tarantino, and all of us is what I'm getting at. Goddamn. Um, so cue the title card and Hans Zimmer's iconic score, set to some downtown scenery, some Detroit city shots with uh, Pat- uh Patrick Patricia Arquette's Alabama delivering an opening monologue about moving from Tallahassee. All the way up to Detroit to find her first true love. So she bookends the film with voiceovers. This is because Alabama's this is Alabama's story through and through. Um, Quentin Tarantino chooses the name Alabama as a homage to Pam Greer, who was Alabama in the 1971 film Women in Cages. That's where that name came from. And the first choice for Alabama was not Arquette. Do you know who it was? Didn't you just say Joan Cusack? No, he wrote it, he wrote the film with her in mind. Oh, uh, okay. No, I don't know who the first choice was then. Yeah, the first choice from the studio was Drew Barrymore. Eh, I could see that. I could see Drew Barrymore more so than Joan Cusack. Not that Joan Cusack isn't talented. I just I would have a harder time seeing her in this role. Drew Barrymore, I can see. Yeah, sure. I can see where he's getting the whole Joan Cusack thing from because around the time he was writing this was probably around the same time Cusack was doing films like Working Girl, which was like a more mature um, level of, I don't know, I'm, I'm wording this piss poorly, but what I'm getting at is like before Working Girl, she was doing a lot of like stuff like her brother high school roles, awkward, stuff like that, you know, kind of like um, Penelope Ann Miller in Adventures in Babysitting comes to mind. Roles like that, kind of quirky. Uh, isn't her character in a full fucking, like, body cast in the movie Pretty in Pink? Not Pretty in Pink. It's, uh, what is it, 16 Candles or something like that? She's, like, in a full, like, body cage. I vaguely have memories of her in some 80s film being like that. But anyway, she had always... It was always like that until around the time Quentin was writing this. And it would make sense that she would catch his eye and he would go on and probably, you know, try and get her potentially. Maybe there's more behind that. Maybe there's not. 
But um, yeah, because Working Girl. I don't know if you're familiar with Working Girl. It's a Mike Nichols film with uh, uh, Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford. Is it ringing a bell? No. Uh, I mean, I know of it. I, okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I might have seen it like a long time ago, but if I have, I haven't seen it recently. But yeah, I know of the film you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Then I will stop babbling. Uh, so back to the film, Clarence is celebrating his birthday by himself at the theater. He's He went anyway. Went to that Street Fighter trilogy, triple feature. That's the, uh, dude, I fucking love the Street Fighter. Have you ever seen the Street Fighter? Are you... No... I'm not big in... I think I talked about this on the Kill Bill episodes. Uh, I'm not big into the Kung Fu or martial arts movies. Mm. I mean, obviously, I know who Sonny Chiba is just because he's legendary. Right. But, uh, you know, I've never seen... I don't think any of the Street Fighter films. So, yeah, that's kind of... Uh, that's wading out into the deep end for me as far as movies. <laughs> the, the the Kung Fu stuff. Because when the pandemic actually first started, um, in a lot of places like... Places were still open, small businesses, um, the story is referring to the Soundgarden, and um, it was kind of like a order service system, like you called ahead, placed the order, they had people would get it together, and then you would like buy it at the door or whatever, or, or purchase it online, just pick it up at the door. So, I was, I was like going through a phase where I was watching this and shit, and like, I kind of wanted to be like Clarence, and I wanted to have myself a Sonny Chiba Street Fighter triple feature. So, sure enough, Shao Factory has these three films in, in a collection, and the Soundgarden actually had a copy in stock for like twenty-seven bucks. So I ordered it and picked it up, and then Arrow put out the sister Street Fighter collection. So about a week later, I went and fucking ordered that and got that in. And yeah, so I, I was going through a phase and it all started with me watching this film during the pandemic for like one of my many times, but I actually wanted to be like Clarence finally and be like, you know what? I want to see what that's like. And you know what? It ain't fucking bad. It ain't fucking bad at all. Cause those movies go by like a breeze, kind of like this film does. So, um, yeah, so he's in the theater, uh, Bama shows up to distract him. She like spills popcorn over him. She starts smoking cigarettes. She jumps over the seat and asks, you know, what she missed. Talking constantly over him and asking random questions like if he wants goobers and shit. And I I haven't seen um, the scene in a long time, uh, but there, there's a, a deleted scene here where one of the ushers is played by Jack Black. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't know that. But um, I was just going to say, it's like the most obvious, like, obviously she's trying to run into him. Oh, like, yeah. They don't, it's clear as day. Uh, and obviously uh, she comes clean shortly after. But even for the first time watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, she's totally trying to get with him for some reason. Like, there's no black and white. Like, she doesn't even try to really hide it. <laughs> I'm a little surprised Clarence isn't 
uh, questioning it a little bit more, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so he takes her then to a, no, after that, okay, after the film, it's the real now. They uh, go to the diner because she asked him if she wants to go join her to have a piece of pie. She's like, so go have a piece of pie and talk about the movie afterwards, like a little tradition. So they go and do that. And uh, this leads to Clarence asking her if she's got a fella. She tells him to ask her that a little later. So then later on, she he takes her to uh, this comic book store that he works at. He's got the keys to the joint. And so the owner lets him come whenever he wants and hang out, read comic books and whatever. He says he doesn't get paid shit, but his boss lets him borrow money from time to time whenever he has it. So, you know, he's showing her stuff and they go up into, they go back to his place and like this loft that he stays in. And, uh, yeah, then we get the Clarence in Alabama, what I call the uh, silhouette sex scene. That's pretty much what this is. And uh, afterwards, she goes outside crying in the middle of the night. And I, you know, I just want to stop to admire this joint that Clarence has. You know, maybe he's not, you know, rattling in the, in, in the women and he's got like a crummy comic book store job but this dude has this loft apartment that he's living in that has <laughs> his own access whenever he wants up to a, up to a billboard that's fucking awesome come on i i know that's like one thing they always overlook in a lot of movies it's like oh yeah i don't make shit for money and they're um, like yeah he doesn't have a great car or great clothes but then like this apartment it's not huge but it's not like a shoebox it's fucking and, awesome i would love to live here yeah and i'm like you would have to have at least a halfway decent job to afford that in pretty much any city and then, yeah, the billboard. Like, I just like to imagine Clarence can live there because when they come to change the billboard, they just walk through his apartment or something. Yeah. Like, the billboard <laughs> guys are just like, hey, Clarence, it's yeah. the first of the month. We're changing it over. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and right. they just walk through. Like, that's what I like to imagine. But, uh, you know, I just want to touch on, like, this is like every nerd's fantasy right here of, like, being nerding out, being at the theater, watching something you like, and having a hot girl just basically come and hit on you and come back to your place so like this is every like nerd fantasy like this is tarantino nerd fan fiction almost as far as i'm concerned um watching this so yeah i just wanted to bring that up because it's totally like things i would fantasize about you know oh yeah i i got you 100 so yeah she's out there crying and clarence comes out to see what's wrong and she tells him the truth. She's a call girl that his boss Lance set up for uh, him to get laid on his birthday. She comes clean and tells Clarence that she thinks that she loves him after he tells her that he was that that was the best nut that he's ever had. She's only been a call girl for exactly four days, and he's her third customer. And she's not damaged goods. Crying? What I do? Did I do good person when it comes to relationships. She's 100% monogamous. I have something so I gotta tell you. Write a note, but can only write very clients and nothing else. I didn't just happen to be at that theater. I was paid to be there. <laughs> you were paid to be there. What are you? Theater checker? 
Get paid to check up on the uh, box office girls, make sure they're not ripping the place off. I'm not a theater checker. <laughs> a call girl. You're a whore? No, I'm a call girl and there's a difference, you know. Okay, here it goes. You know the place you took me to last night? The place you work? Heroes for sale? You got a boss, right? Yeah. Okay, what's his name? Lance. That's him. He called the place where I work. He ordered a girl for you. He said he wanted you to get laid. See, you didn't get out much, and it was your birthday and all. He wanted me to act like I just showed up. Now, how did he know you were going to be at that theater? Uh, well, I, I go to the movies every year on my birthday. In fact, he called me up this week to find out what my birthday movie was going to be. You're not mad? Oh, man. I can't tell you. That was one of the best times I ever had. It was. You know, I knew something must be rotten in Denmark. There was no way you could like me that much. I mean, I can't tell you how relieved I was when you took off your dress. You, you didn't have a dick. Stop being so fucking calm about all this. Go look in your house. There's a note on your TV, and all it says is Dear Clarence, because I couldn't write anymore. So I just said, Alabama, come clean. And just tell him what's what. And if he tells you to go back to Drexel and fuck yourself, then go back to Drexel and fuck yourself. Drexel, what's what's a Drexel? Please shut up. I'm trying to come clean, okay? I've been a call girl for exactly four days, and you're my third customer. I want you to know that I'm not damaged goods. I'm not what they call in Florida white trash. I'm a really good person. And when it comes to relationships, I'm 100%. I'm 100%. This is such an adorable scene. I cannot help but to just be there and just go, ah, I love these two. It so makes me so happy and warms my heart. It really does. And then fucking Hans Zimmer's theme really just adds to it. That you're so cool theme that just plays. Oh my fucking God. This is perfection. Ugh. I just and again in my notes here, I want to live somewhere where I can go out into a billboard, and I can go out onto a billboard with a comforter thrown over me for good measure. That was my note. So Clarence and Alabama are getting are they they get married at the courthouse, then they go to get matching tattoos, and there he's told about Drexel, her former white pimp who thinks he's black. She tells him how Drexel slapped one of her friends around the other day. And then we cut to a motel room with Sam Jackson, Lawrence Mason, who was the guy who played Tintin in The Crow, that little crow connection again, Gary Oldman, and his bodyguard Marty, played by Paul Bates, who is Oha from Coming to America. And <laughs> there's a drug deal. And before the drug deal goes down, like we don't even actually see the drug deal because it starts out with them talking about eating ass and pussy, and then all of a sudden, Drexel just gets gun trigger happy and and kills um, Lawrence Mason and Sam Jackson, takes the briefcase with the uh, the full of of coke and and uh, yeah, they dip out, and that's that's our introduction to him. It's um. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, doesn't, uh, you know, the Drexel character, Gary Oldman in this kind of remind you of the DJ from Zoolander? Like that's oh, at least, God. like put the two together as like, he looks like the fucking DJ from Zoolander. He just needs a, he, Justin Thoreau, he just needs a fucked up tooth and he, it's it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a perfection. 
I just like to imagine Gary Oldman, like they're trying to sell him on this movie and he's like, I get to wear dreadlocks and have scars and be fucking crazy and sit in my underwear. Sure. I'm in like, I just imagine that. That, that, that would be perfect. Gary Oldman. He told the American film Institute that his two favorite roles of all time are Lee Lee Harvey Oswald from JFK and Drexel from True Romance. Imagine that. (laughs) His character had more scenes earlier in the script but was cut down. Afterwards, Gary Oldman also had his Dracula wig. And, um, yeah, the wig, the wig maker made his wig based on hair from that. Huh. Oh, I thought he was going to say he wanted to wear it. Like, no, he wanted no, to be no, Dracula, no, no. Drexel, or no. some shit. So, um, yeah. Clarence, he just fucking can't shake Drexel off his mind. So, he's seen now, talking to Elvis about it in his bathroom, where he's convinced to handle business himself that no one's ever going to miss a scumbag pimp who deserves his own comeuppance. He uh, comes out of the bathroom and has Alabama write down his, the, the address so he can go get her stuff. And he tells her that he needs to do this and she knows that she can count on him to protect her so she does this and then he leaves. So, um, Val Kilmer is Elvis. I know. Just I didn't know I didn't know that when I was younger. Like I had no idea it was uh fucking Iceman and Batman playing well, uh, you know. In this mentor. film's defense you know, maybe maybe it's different. Um when's the last time you watched this? Did you ever watch it on VHS? Probably look different. Uh, the quality VHS? is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I watched it. I think that's when I rented it the first time. It was yeah. on VHS, yeah. Okay. So, that's what I'm getting at. The quality. Um, <clears throat> where we at here? So, yes, this is, um... Hang on. Clarence is going over to Drexel's. Yeah, he's there. And, and, and um... Yeah. Oh, okay. That's where, I, that's where I was at. Val Kilmer. You got to follow up to it? Val fucking Kilmer. No, hang on. Sorry, Silence. I'm sorry. Uh, according to Tony Scott, Val Kilmer wanted to play Clarence. Oh, okay. There we go. I knew I'd get it out. Kilmer spent eight hours in makeup being transformed into Elvis Presley. Unfortunately, he was only required for two days of filming. But you don't even see him. It's just blur. I- I know, like, that is such a waste. And his character is credited <laughs> as mentor, not Elvis. Like you they didn't, yeah, they didn't want to face it. any litigation charges from the Presley estate, that's all. They were just pro- protecting their own asses. They went through all that, you know, hard work and effort to uh, initially make them, you know, be obviously it's Elvis, but kind of backpedaled. I don't know. It's, that's how it looks to me. So, Clarence goes to see Drexel at his place. Got girls outside dancing. 90s techno music blaring on the inside. Drexel eating Chinese food while watching the Mac. There's an envelope with his peace of mind, and his peace of mind is not worth one penny more. He gives, gives it to Drexel. 
and it's empty. Shocker. Uh, chaos ensues. He must have thought it was White Boy Day, eh? Nah, it ain't White Boy Day. So, I want to talk about Gary Oldman's makeover for this role as Drexel. According to Gary Oldman, it was a collaborative thing, and you work with the costume designer and the director. In this case of True Romance, I was already working on a film and had no way of meeting Tony Scott. I met him once at the interview, and he said, I cannot tell you what the story is. I'm not good at that. He said, the character, he's a white guy, thinks he's black, and he's a pimp. And I said, I'll do it. And we shook hands, and I hadn't even read the script. And then over the course of working on it, I had this idea about the dreadlocks and a scar and teeth and all that. And I would just write to Tony, what about this? What about that? And on the first day of shooting, that's when he saw it all put together. So yeah, I'm thinking and I'm thinking about all those details. So, you know, I I, I love that drive, that initiative. That's what makes Gary Oldman the legend that he is. And hey, it paid off because, like I said at the top of this, he goes back and says that this is one of his two f- favorite performances. So you could tell he, he cared. He, you know, had a lot to bring to the character and uh, to the film with that. Yeah. And it's a memorable character. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that he only has the two quick scenes. Uh, but I still remember him like in all as far as all the side characters, even characters that get way more screen time. I always remember Drexel, Gary Oldman, like he, he really does stand out in this film, even for a short time. Yeah. Um, so Clarence returns home wearing his Elvis shades with burgers from the Big Kahuna and he's carrying Alabama's bag. Well, he thinks it is. She cries, and he mistakes it for her crying for him, but she stops him and says that she thinks that what he did was so romantic and kisses him. Clarence ended up grabbing Drexel's cocaine bag in a similar... It's a similar bag. It's one of those mix-ups. And, uh... Actually, he didn't grab it. He had one of Drexel's girls go get it. It was one of the girls. She's like, give me Alabama stuff. She's like, ah, the drugs are hers, I think. Here you go. (laughs) She just grabs it. Yeah, dude. That's all that was in there. Just all pure uncut cocaine. So, they take it to... Well, they're going to a lot of places. But first, it's 8.30 in the morning. They're going to go see Dennis Hopper. He's coming in from work as, uh... Looks like a security guard. Clarence is the last person in the world he expected to see so early. So before he even goes inside, uh, Clarence sends Alabama out to uh, pick up some beer. Like he just wants beer, dude. Um, and his day and his dad mentions that he stopped drinking, and then he's kind of a dick about it with his dad because his dad tells him he stopped. He's like, "Yeah, I can, but I don't." And you know. Uh, like I swear to God, it's not even two minutes later. He's like, "You want some beer, Dad? You want some? We'll tell you what. If when we leave, if you want some, it's gonna be there." It's like, "Wow, would it be an enabler? Way to go, dude!" <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he doesn't believe him. I mean, I get the feeling that uh, obviously Dennis Hopper wasn't a good father to no, Clarence. He even and tells him he was wasn't. a drunk. Yeah, and was a drunk, and you know, Clarence kind of almost doesn't believe him probably. That he's clean now, even though it does seem like Dennis Hopper has shit together um, in the film and is just kind of living a sorry existence, I think, just feeling guilty 
probably about uh, the way he's treated his family in the past. That's kind of what you get. I mean, it's only he's only in a couple scenes, but uh, you know, you really do kind of understand the character and feel for you know Dennis Hopper in this. Yeah, you said three years. That's how long it's been since they've talked. He sends Alabama to go get them some imported beer at 8.30 in the morning and then talks to his dad about, you know, stuff. He tells him that he loves him and he's happy to see him, but slow it down, man. Clarence tells his father about what happened with Drexel and wants him to see through his friends on the force if there's any leads on what happened, basically asking if he's in the clear. His dad's resistant at first, but Clarence puts him in his place about always who happened his back whenever everyone always turned their backs on him. And now he needs his father's help for something. So, Tony Scott, man. He, um, this, this purple Cadillac that they're driving, he gave Patricia Arquette the purple Cadillac for a gift after shooting was wrapped. She was driving apparently a Ford... Futura uh, and it was just on the verge so uh, he awarded her with the car for um, yeah, for her help and everything I guess she didn't buy a new car after Nightmare on Elm <laughs> Street 3 no of course not oh <laughs> uh, shit so then we get Dick Ritchie who's uh, um, oh my god I'm drawing a fucking blank Rappaport. Yeah, Michael Rappaport. Duh. Michael Rappaport's Dick Ritchie is going in for an interview. Well, it's an audition, I'm sorry. He's, he's going in for an audition with uh, Conchata Pharrell from Two and a Half Men and Mr. Deeds. I ain't got no balls, you dummy. So, uh, it's the new T.J. Hooker, apparently, and it's just this audition. He's got to pretend he's driving and Bill, <laughs> Bill Shatner gets thrown on the windshield, apparently. <laughs> I know. He's so terrible. Like It's uh, so bad. Uh, he does a really good job of playing a bad actor. Yes. I don't I don't know what he did for the role, because obviously he's a legit... Michael Rapport's a legit actor. Like, he's great in a lot of things. Uh, so he did a good job of playing, like, the noob bad actor. I love him in this film. Yeah, Jesus. Um, who the fuck was that? Don't just shoot him. Get him off there. All right, so Cliff tells Clarence not to worry. It was all drug-related, and the more he hears about this Druxel character, the more he feels that he did the right thing. No cops were after him. They all just assumed Drexel had a fallen out with a supplier. Blue Lou Boyle, the unseen person in this film who the drugs belong to, and, uh, yeah, when Alabama and um, Clarence go to leave, Alabama gives Cliff a big old kiss that actually, he's like, son of a bitch is right. She does take, uh, taste like a peach. Can you get behind the way she kisses her father-in-law? And no, it's <laughs> fucking weird. And uh, I just want to comment, like, Clarence, like, yeah, I understand checking with the cops to see if you're in the clear, but how are you not going to check? Um, or at least... It, think about like the gangsters are going to be looking for this shit because I know he killed Drexel and it was Drexel's shit like it was there but obviously with this amount like a higher level uh, drug lord or crime boss is going to be looking for it. I'm just surprised it never crosses their mind until 
uh, Gandolfini shows up in their hotel room, you know, in the movie. I'm just surprised they didn't think about that end. They thought about the cops, didn't think about the other side, though, really. <laughs> I had to, I have no idea. Then they spend what I believe was a lot of money on Elvis writes for some music for this roadside page payphone sex scene. They called Dick Ritchie up to announce that they're coming to LA and uh, they got married and they're gonna go. They, they he mentions this mail. He's like, "You check your mail, check your mail, check your mail. Make sure you check the mail before we get there." So they hang up when they have phones. Oh, they had they had they start to have the the sex while he's on the phone, which is awkward. They hang up. Truck driver drives by, honks the horn, phone ends. Then we get, boom, the fucking film's most famous scene, the Sicilian scene between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. You're Sicilian, huh? Sicilian. <laughs> no. I read a lot, especially about things, about history. I find that shit fascinating. Here's a fact. I don't know whether you know or not. Well, Sicilians were spawned by n****s. Come again? (laughs) It's a fact. You see, uh, Sicilians have uh, black blood pumping through their hearts. And, and no, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, you can look it up. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, you see, uh, the Moors conquered Sicily. And the Moors are n****s. Yeah. See, you see, way back then, uh, Sicilians were like uh, from northern Italy. Uh, they all had blonde hair and blue eyes. But, uh, well, then the Moors moved in there and, uh, well, they changed the whole country. They did so much fucking with Sicilian women, huh? That they changed the whole bloodline forever. That's why blonde hair and blue eyes became black hair and dark skin. You know, it's absolutely amazing to me to think that to this day, hundreds of years later, that uh, that Sicilians still carry that gene. Now this, <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm quoting history. It's written. It's a fact. It's written. I love this guy. No, guy. No. Your ancestors are. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. And, and your great, 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 great grandmother fucked in. Oh, yeah. And she had a half kid. Now, if that's a fact, tell me, am I lying? Because you. Your part, eggplant. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! You're a cantaloupe. 
Absolutely. I mean, this whole scene is electric. It's like two masters just working off each other and walking and Dennis Hopper. I mean, it's just I wish it had more of it. Honestly, it's so good. I just for whatever reason, I just wish the characters could be around longer (laughs) and be in it more because it's fucking awesome. The opening line alone is one of my favorites. I'm the Antichrist. You've got me in that kind of mood. It's like you tell the angels in heaven. You've never seen aim, you've never seen evil so singularly personified as you did in the face of the man who killed you. It's it's so fucking deep and darkening, and it's just Hopper knows he's just it, it's numbered for him. He's done. There's nothing he can do to get out of the situation that he's in, and it's terrible, you know, to be in. To watch this scene, it's interesting to watch it from two different person point of views, from two different perspectives. Watching this scene. I'll sometimes do that. Like you first, you gotta watch it through Hoppers, because you know he's on borrowed time, and there's nothing that he can do to get out of the situation that he is in. He is fucked. He knows it, you know. Um, but he's still going to use those final minutes of his life to defend his boy, and and he's not gonna give it up. He's gonna play dumb as long as he can. Um. And again, he, he there's no getting out. There's just none, and he knows it. No. And that's why he goes out the way he does, with the with the with the whole Sicilian monologue and the the, the, egg, <laughs> the egg, eggplant and the, and the cantaloupe shit. You know. Yeah, it's just it's just hilarious watching them work off each other because, you know, Walken's trying to intimidate. Hopper knows he's screwed, and I think Walken knows that Hopper knows. Like it's just they're playing off each other because they're both so smart you know hopper's like i'm fucked so i'm just gonna fuck with these guys and call them you know basically the n-word <laughs> you yeah know, and for the entire time and, and just really insult them right and that's the other point of view you gotta watch it from Watkins too because he's he's there for a reason it's his sole scene to begin with and he's there uh representing blue lou and you know he wants something and he's got a means to get what he wants. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, he says that the neighbors saw his Cadillac parked there yesterday. His son's Cadillac refers to Alabama as a whore numerous times throughout this, saying that there was a massacre. But, uh, he left his... The dummy your son has left his driver's license in a dead guy's hand. And, uh, you know, whether... He believes them is none of his importance, but what is, is that he believes him. And then, yeah, that's when he goes out with the Sicilian monologue. Um, an all-timer for monologues? It's 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 up there, at least, you know. It starts with Walken's Don Vincenzo, Vin- yeah, Vincenzo Cocody talking about Sicilians being great liars, the best in the world. Hopper then responds by talking about Sicilians being from the African-American bloodline. 
and goes down the history before calling him a part eggplant. Doesn't go well for a pal Hopper here. Violent shot to the head. Then we get the line, I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And then on the way out, of course, there's a certain address on the fridge. And uh, yeah, Sicilian Tarantino. He's named this scene one of his proudest moments. He says, I had heard that whole speech about the Sicilians a long time ago from a black guy living in my house. One day I was talking with a friend who was Sicilian and I just started telling that speech and I thought, wow, that is a great scene. I got to remember that. And according to Dennis Hopper, the only words that were ever improvised this entire scene were the words eggplant and cantaloupe. That is it. Which it just adds something because it's just so, like, just silly. Like, in this, in this tense, and it's so specific situation. Too. And it's just so funny. Yeah. And then, following the eggplant scene, Dennis Hopper was concerned about being shot by Christopher Walken with the prop gun so close against the head for fear of being burnt by the barrel. Director Tony Scott assured him the gun was 100% safe and even tested it by having the prop man fire it against his own head. But upon firing the prop gun, the barrel extended about a third of an inch, and Scott ended up on the floor with, a blood, with blood pouring from the wound. So, kind of backfired on him. <laughs> Hopper's like, I've been around, I fucking know what I'm doing. <laughs> yep. He's like, I know what's happening with that gun. So then we cue Aerosmith's The Other Side as Clarence in Alabama enter L.A. for the first time. They get to Dick and Floyd's place and go out with Dick, leaving Floyd on the couch to finish watching Stay Tuned with John Ritter. So let's talk about Brad Pitt's Floyd. And uh, yeah, dude, this fucking... First off, Brad Pitt improvised most of his dialogue, of course. And... The character of Floyd is Tarantino's take on all the roommates he had to suffer through before finding success. Floyd's the closest <laughs> thing he's written to a mere sketch of a character, and he credits Pitt with taking that to nothing, with taking that nothing on the page and making it so memorable. Um, I, I love Pitt in this. It's short but sweet. It's it's you know, it's just a guy having a goofy fun time. This was 93, so this was the same year he did California, which I just watched the other day. In that role, he's just a fucking psychopath. And he was doing a lot of those dark kind of roles around this time. He had, uh, I remember he was a villain in that movie, The Devil's Own. Um, wasn't the villain in Seven, but still, that movie's fucked to begin with. No matter, there, there are no good guys or bad guys in that movie. Everyone's just fucking dark in their own way. Um, but yeah, Brad Pitt around this time, he was kind of like finding that niche is the best way to put it. And this film came around and he just had the opportunity to just lay on a couch and act stoned, probably was stoned and, 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 you know, get paid and, and share the screen or share credits with all of these top people and you know from there on his career only got bigger and bigger i mean it's yeah. fucking brad pitt we're talking about i know because 
it was obviously he was well known at this point, even when this came out. But I saw it, you know, several years later when I rented it, and I was like, "Holy shit, that's Brad Pitt!" And it was. It was just so different because you could just tell by watching it he was just having fun in oh, this yeah. role. Yeah. Like he just showed up, rolled out of bed, showed up, got costume, and then just started ad libbing. You could tell uh, he was just having a ball. So it was fun seeing him. Uh, like you said, in a different type role than what he was doing then. Yeah. So then we get our... Oh, wait, here, I'm sorry. Got ahead of myself. Clarence in Alabama get a room, and there the drugs are revealed. He wants to sell it. That's why he's in L.A. The letter that we mentioned before was um, written for Dick to have potential buyers lined up for when they got to town but Dick says that he can't do it like that because he doesn't know people and the fact that he's trying to push a half a million worth of blow to someone he doesn't know who who doesn't know who he is it's impossible he mentions he, he eventually mentions a potential somebody and this is where we get uh, Elliot this producer or assistant agent guy that works with uh, producer Lee Donovitz um. Yeah, Elliot Blitzer. That's his name. And Elliot Blitzer is Bronson Pitchow from Beverly Hills Cop. Come on, Serge from Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop Three. Um. Of course, a lot of people are gonna know him as Balky from Perfect Strangers, from uh, ABC's TGIF, uh, Risky Business, uh, Stephen King's The Langoliers. A lot of movies this guy was in, and still continues to. You know show up and, and, and work. Um, he's just a highly respected character actor, in, in my opinion. Where are you at on Bronson Pinchot? Eh, he's okay. I mean, I, I remember thinking he was fine in Beverly Hills Cop, and he's pretty good in this, especially uh, later on in the uh, ending uh, drug deal scene, I think is where he really shines in this. But yeah, I could take it or leave. I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I mean, okay. he does... He does his job well in a lot of movies. I did want to mention, too, though, uh, when they're trying to convince um, Michael Rappaport's character, um, or Dickie, yeah, uh, when they're trying to convince Dickie uh, to hook up and sell the drugs, he's like, well, I didn't read the second part of the letter. Floyd smoked it. I just love that little line. Like, Floyd smoked the second page of his letter. <laughs> yeah, that line's great. You call him Dickie? It's Dick Ritchie. Dickie. I call him Dickie. Yeah, that's fine. That's funny. <laughs> Um, Tony Montoya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the great Tony Montoya. You know him. The great Enrique Iglesias. All right, so we get the Six Flags Magic Mountain scene. Clarence and Elliot go negotiate their deal on the uh, Viper roller coaster, which at the time was the world's tallest roller coaster. It's I know no longer. I so I so want to go. Uh, to Six Flags Magic Mountain. Like, that's one of my bucket list parks to go to. Same. Um, as a roller coaster fan, like, if you had me pick, there would be, like, a handful of places, and that would be one of them, just because it has so many awesome roller coasters. And Viper's one. I heard it's actually a still good roller coaster from what I hear. Yeah, I heard it still holds up. That's one of the many reasons why it's still there um, to this day. Now, funny story about roller coasters and, and theme parks uh, over the last five years or so, like I kind of like kind of dip in the number of times I was going to them, and 
I don't know what it was. I mean, my whole thing about roller coasters in general and theme parks is like, it was kind of an oxymoron because I'm petrified of heights, but I would love me some roller coasters. The taller, the better, the faster, the better. What goes up must go down. I I trusted the safety of them. That's why it never really (laughs) bothered me. But what I'm getting at is over the last handful of years, me not going to them as much as I used to, um, that fear for the first time has happened. The last couple times I went to a theme park. Last year I went to Six Flags in Jersey. Yeah, where they trying to launch on King to Khan, you're like, nope, nope, don't want to go up. No, it wasn't <laughs> even that. The first ride we got on was Nitro, which is yeah, about Nitro is pretty tall, 200 feet. It's about 200, know, or so. 230-ish. Um, and that was, you know, we got on it and we're going up and we're going up, and I'm like, this is fucking tall. And I'm starting to freak out a little bit. I'm starting to get a little panicky. And like the drop hits and like that feeling on my stomach used to be my all-time favorite feeling. And now it's like kind of didn't like it because I wasn't used to it as much because I haven't been on rides like I used to get on them. And like it kind of like that feeling went away. And like I've been trying to like get it back, you know, because I miss it. I don't want to be afraid. I want to be fearless. I want to fucking love roller coasters and, and, and embrace them. I want to get back to that level, you know, I just gotta get, I guess, get out there and ride them more and more and shit, cause like, you know, I don't want to go to King's Dominion again, a, a theme park that I've been bouncing around with Madeline about going this summer too, which I haven't been there since 2010. And for those of you who don't know, it's one of the premier parks here in the um, the the, the Delmarva area, and it has. Um, one of the tallest coasters in the area, which is the uh, f- the uh, was it Fury three three oh five. No, I three I three oh five Intimidator. Intimidator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. Fury's down in Carowinds. Um, Intimidator three oh five, which is just from the name, a coaster that's three hundred and five feet tall. A coaster that I've been on before. I've rode it a handful of times, and I loved it every time. And now. I'm. I know that when we get to the park, if we do go, which we probably are, eventually we're most likely probably going to go. Um, I don't want to be scared of that ride, especially when I've been on it before. You know, I. So hopefully, I can kick out of this, and that's all. We were on the topic of uh, roller coasters. I figured, why not bring that up? Yeah, I'll I'll just say this. In my older age, I still like roller coasters. I don't get scared by them. But uh, we went to Universal right before my son was born, which is now uh, about four years ago. Okay. And we were lapping Hulk because there wasn't uh, any line. And it just uh, reopened. They just redid the whole ride. Yeah, Hulk. it got retracked. Yeah, and it was smooth and there was no problem. But I realized I used to be able to just lap roller coasters. Like I could just keep rolling and rolling and rolling. After the third time, I had a splitting headache, and it wasn't due to the ride. It was just I realized at my um, middle-aged life, I can't hang on those things like I used to. <laughs> so oh, I, I realized that, like, I can still ride them, but uh-huh. I can't, like, just keep going and going and going. You know, like, when El Toro was relatively new, I remember going there with my family, and my brother and I were just lapping that thing, which, for anybody who doesn't know, El Toro is, like, one of the craziest airtime uh roller coasters you can ride and we just lapped it over and over and over but that was you know 
15 years ago. So right. can't do that anymore. No, unfortunately we cannot. <laughs> so the scene on the uh, roller coaster was filmed over two days. Michael Rappaport, unfortunately, has a fear of roller coasters and suffers from acute motion sickness. Uh, facts which no one knew during the first day's filming. By the second day, the film was prepared for this and they gave him something to calm his nerves. As a result, one can easily tell them from uh, one can easily tell from cut to cut which day in particular moment was filmed by watching the uh, look on his face in the background. <laughs> he, I was gonna say, like you see his head flopping back and forth because he's fucking passed out. Or yeah, something. his expression <laughs> goes back and forth from oppressive, uh, from apprehensive uh, and, and nauseous the first day, to bland and oblivious to his surroundings the second day. The roller coaster scene was originally written to take place in a zoo. Tony Scott changed it to give the movie an adrenaline rush quote unquote I like the fact that they did this here um you know it's I'm a sucker for theme parks number one but you know it's different it's unique um and you know kudos to them for being able to film this on at the time which it was either yeah I think in 92 or 93 yeah it would have been 92 when they filmed this that this was the title holder for the world's tallest roller coaster. I can't think of anything else. But, you know, if it wasn't the actual tallest, it was definitely in the top five. And, and it's still pretty cool that they were able to film it on that roller coaster. You know, like, today, you're not going to see too many films shooting on, like, Ken the Ka or Top Bill Dragster. Well, that might not be a ride anymore. But Ken the Ka, at least, you know what I mean? Yeah. That'd be different. Yeah, just like YouTube stuff, but not, yeah, not a film. Yeah. So, uh, afterwards, uh, they, uh, he gets Elliot to call Lee. It's Sunday. He flips out and Elliot calls him on his cell phone and then Elliot grabs the phone and immediately begins negotiating, do- not Elliot, uh, Clarence grabs the phone and immediately begins negotiating Dr. Zhivago using movie talk. He's like talking and and he's doing a good job with his words and uh he has dick get back on the phone not dick um he gets elliot to get back on the phone and i love this line he's like he you want me to suck his dick no i said who the fuck is dick he's talking about dick (laughs) richie yeah me and sean always quote that you want me to suck his dick no i said who the fuck is dick so they agrees to meet at the Beverly Ambassador Hotel on Wednesday at 3 o'clock. Don't be late. Bring all your friends. And although the film wasn't directed by Quentin Tarantino, it is still considered part of his universe. The first clue to this is Lee Donowitz. I'm sorry, Lee Donowitz. He is the grandson of Sergeant Donnie Donowitz from Inglorious Bastards, previous episode. Uh, and the second piece of evidence is the fact that Mr. White and Reservoir Dogs mentions working with a girl named Alabama. Again, previous episode. And I do believe both of them stories were mentioned in those episodes as well. So there's a connection in case you're wondering. It's all one big universe, baby. Not to mention you got things that play a part in all the films like 
the 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 the, 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 the I forgot the name of the brand, but the cigarettes that the they smoke. I know it's not Red Apple because that's Quentin. That's Kevin Smith. It's something. But um, yeah, I forget that the Big Kahuna Burgers and one. Big Kahuna Burger is the other one. Yeah. Yep. So then we get uh, James Gandolfini because why not? Tony Soprano's in this. He shows up and visits Lloyd, Lloyd Floyd, and uh, yeah, Floyd's still on the couch, but he's no longer watching Stay Tuned. Now he's watching Free Jack. You a big Free Jack fan, Corey? <laughs> I don't think I've seen that movie since uh, probably around when this movie came out. Like it's been a long time, but yeah, I do remember Free Jack. Uh, who was that? Amelia Westavez? Was it Mick Jagger and Anthony Hopkins? Yeah, Hopkins is. Yeah, that's the other one I was gonna mention. Yep. That's what I thought. Okay. So, yeah, Gandalfini tells them tells her that they're uh, at the Safari Motel. Yeah, he says they're. Uh, they were here, but then they left. Yeah, <laughs> with Dick, and uh, they stay at the Safari Motel. And then I love uh, after Gandolfini leaves, and then you just hear Floyd. He's like, "Condescend me, so motherfucker!" Don't just condescend like the true... me, man. I'll fucking kill you, man. Yeah, he's like got the true stoner way yes. of like just being cool when he's there, and then as soon as he leaves, you just say something under your breath. You know, and act all tough and then keep smoking on your couch. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Hi. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. You dick? No. Dick Richie? No, he's not here right now. You live here? Yes, I do. He is sort of a uh, roommate? Exactly, roommate. Yeah, well, maybe you can help me. I'm looking for a friend sure. of mine. Clarence Worley from Detroit. He's traveling with a real pretty girl named Alabama. Oh, yeah, man, I know him. They've been by here. You seen them? Mm-hmm. They stay in here? No, they're staying at the Safari Motor Motel Inn. Safari Motel. Safari Motel? Yeah. How do you know that? I mean, have you been over there? No. Well, they were here, and they said that they were going to go there. And they went. Yeah? Yeah. Safari, Safari Motel. Safari Motel. Uh-huh. Hey, you want to watch some TV or something? They might be back here. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right, you take care. I might be back. Yeah. Okay, be cool. Now, I I had to put this note here. One of the things that Tarantino doesn't like about the film is the unrealistic aspect of the framed posters on Dick and Floyd's walls. He says that these two are far too broke to afford so much framing. So he thinks that they... Yeah, he says that these two are far too broke to afford so much framing and he thinks that they feel like the movie choices that 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 are here that they don't fit the characters so i don't know yeah i mean 
it's a common thing in films. I tend it's to not kind like of frames agree cost with... an arm and a leg. They don't. No, but when you're a broke actor living in a crappy apartment, I mean, are you really going to spend that time doing that? I mean, some people might, but it, it that's a complaint for me for a lot of movies and TV shows of like, yeah, they do it so you get an insight to the character and get an idea of what they like, but does it always make sense? No. Like, uh, was it Stranger Things? Like, the kid having an Evil Dead poster when Evil Dead literally, I think, came out like a year before the events <laughs> yeah. of uh, that show. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody fucking knew what Evil Dead was back then. And I don't even know if you could get a poster like that back then. So, it. it Stuff like that annoys me, but it's a minor thing. I don't know. I didn't read that much into it. Uh, hang on a sec. Um, yeah, so then we get Patricia Arquette versus James Gandolfini. And uh, this is a hard scene to watch. No matter how many times I've seen this movie... This scene alone is always just so tough to watch. It's so brutal and in your face. And just the beating that Arquette takes is just so fucking animalistic. It is. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fucking brutal. And, you know, it just sets up the love that they have, you know, Clarence and Alabama have for each other because you wouldn't go through this shit if you didn't really love the person, you know. You wouldn't be protecting them and holding out while Gandolfini's smashing your face in, you know. So it just shows because Clarence obviously went through that earlier with the, you know, Drexel thing, and now she's going through this now with Gandolfini, like, protecting each other, watching each other's back. But I will say one thing, uh, Gandolfini's character, who doesn't look under the bed? Like, you're looking for a suitcase... Who would not look under the bed instantly? Like, whether you thought there was, like, a 5% chance of the drugs being there, wouldn't you just glance under the bed? And even he like says he didn't it. Say it at first? Even he says something about it. He was like, under the bed. I can't believe I didn't look under the bed. He even makes a comment about how he can't believe he didn't look or check there. He's like, you had, yeah. he's like, you had it under the bed? I can't believe you actually had it under the bed. Oh, my God. I can't believe I didn't check there. So, yeah, she... Because at first she plays it dumb... Like that, like she says that that she's in the wrong room, and that she's there with her her husband throwing their honeymoon, and football player. Yeah, <laughs> and like, I'm like, okay, but she's just having this conversation with this dude, like, instead of freaking out, asking questions like, who the fuck are you? Why are you in our room? No, she's just having this conversation with him and shit, and like, he's just like, where's our coke? And she's like, yo. The, we don't have coke, but there's a Pepsi machine out in the hallway, <laughs> and yeah, and then it just it just goes south real fast, and uh, he just just throws her through everything, literally through the fucking bathroom glass. Um, she tries to yeah. fight back with a the the a corkscrew in the, in his leg, and like just. She tries to set him on fire. Oh yeah, she does actually afterwards because like she, <laughs> she doesn't try. She, she succeeds. succeeds in that one because <laughs> that's yeah, right. The corkscrew goes into his foot, and then the, the the fucking flames, and then she just shoots him for good measure and just does a number to him, dude. It doesn't end well yeah. at all for Tony Soprano. <laughs>
get a good ah! Jesus Christ. Come on, darling. We better get the fuck out of here. she starts beating him like yeah the, the probably the most brutal part you hear like just this thud as she's beating the shotgun into like is probably brain mush skull at this point so it's just uh like yeah the whole scene is really brutal uh tough to watch it acted very well both gandolfini and arquette are fantastic gandolfini has like all these little uh facial expressions he does throughout the whole thing like he's enjoying it like he's a psychopath Right. And uh, Arquette, you know, is just playing it cool and then just basically laughing at him like, Haha, you look ridiculous. Like, basically, like, <laughs> fuck you. You're not, you know, you're not intimidating me. You know, I- I'm not backing down. So uh, just well acted both ways. Uh, I think Gandolfini definitely adds something uh, to the scene big time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I-, I think he just adds a lot that you know because there's a lot of other people too that that to, to their credit you know add their own little elements um because there's like you know i don't want to get ahead of myself but like part of the sicilians we also got people like uh kevin corrigan from bad boys <laughs> who shows up yeah. uh our boy paul ben victor who you know of course was part of the wire uh, in the season two storyline, and who was also shown up in a, the whole assortment of, of of films, playing the same stereotypical character. Uh, he shows up as one of them. You know, it's and it's just a free for all. So, um, but anyway, yeah, she's dead. Or he's dead. Clarence, <laughs> <laughs> Clarence gets there right at the scene at the time and grabs a beat in bloodied Alabama. Speeds off with her in the car from the motel, screaming and cussing because he's just filled with guilt that he wasn't there in time for her to save her. Um, yeah, he was busy talking about Elvis. Um, I forget the actor's name, but he's in a ton of stuff. But he's busy talking about Elvis. Yeah, uh, Gregory Sporletter, who was also in last week's The Rock, who played the, um, uh, I forgot his name in The Rock, it was, um, it's 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 coming to me, uh, Fry, Captain Fry, uh, he was also, I made a reference to him being in Say Anything, because he was also in that, and a couple of other early 80s. Uh, Renaissance Man, Renaissance Man is I've, the one I've I always never remember seen that. him from. I see, I'm familiar with Danny him. Danny DeVito. I, I, I know him from... Uh, the the rock and um, say anything. So, anyway, so where are we at? Hang on a second. Go back to my notes. So yeah, they they get out of there. Um, and then this is where uh, I I chose to write this note here. So Tony Scott was a little physical when set with with Patricia Arquette. He uh, would often, with her permission. Uh, to just slap, actually slap her, to just get her in the focus and in character and shit. 
uh, <laughs> by the end of the show. you imagine like, like being a uh, just like a PA or something like that, <laughs> walking up and just seeing the director slapping the shit out yeah. of the lead actress? <laughs> and by the end of shooting, um, she was asked the she was asked she was asking for the persuader to be able to act in key scenes. So, uh, then we got Elliot getting some roadhead from Godzilla's Maria uh, Patillo when he's pulled over. And they get into a fight, and she fucking knocks this bag of uncut cocaine up and back into his face. Um, yeah, cop gets there. Not a good look. Not a good sight. Ne- yeah, if he if he wasn't so paranoid, he probably would have been fine. The cop probably wouldn't have searched him or anything just for speeding and driving a little fast and reckless. Like if he would have just stashed it and been calm. He would have been cool, but no, he had to be paranoid. And then he gets, I just love the look on uh, Bronson Pichot's face when the cop walks up. Like, it's just such a shit eating grin because he knows he's screwed. And yes, he is definitely screwed. So we got Chris Penn and Tom Sizemore in the interrogation room with Elliot, who agrees, by the way, to do a plea deal and wear a wire for his freedom. So they take his, they take this information to their captain. Captain here, played by the late Ed Lauder, who's a, you know, bunch of uh, stuff with, uh, 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 what's his name? Jesus, I'm drawing a blank here. Clint Eastwood. And he was also in one of the Death Wish films. I want to say he was in Death Wish 3? Question mark? Uh, he's in Cujo. That's what I remember. He's in Cujo. Cujo. He's also in uh, not another teen movie. He played the coach. Mulholland um, Falls. Even Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. So many. I yeah. can see. Yeah, and also The Longest Yard. Both the original and the remake. And, uh, yeah, one scene here is the captain. When did he... Trying to see here. When did he pass away? He's been going for how long now? Um, I feel like it was. I feel like it was a while ago, like ten years ago, probably. Almost October eighteenth, two thousand thirteen. So almost ten years, nine years coming up. So yeah, he's the uh, captain. Gets the approval. That's also worth mentioning that this scene was improvised by all three actors. Uh, I think you can tell. I mean, yeah. Sizemore and Chris Patter just game for this. Like, I love those two. Like, in just the brief scenes we see them, I'm pretty sure uh, Sizemore was doing some of the uh, drugs they found on Pincho because <laughs> he is, like, amped up in yeah. this movie. And Chris Patter, they're both just great. Uh, I love them both in their limited scenes. Clarence is tending to Alabama's injuries and talking to her about their future together on a boat down... Um, I'm sorry, on a beat-down couch at the end of the LAX one way. I think you remember a lot of movies in the 90s were set here at the end of the runway. Like, Wayne's World is one that comes to mind. Um, there's, I, I want to say there's a couple other films from the 90s where the teenagers were just like, looking for something to do, so they're going to sit underneath the uh, LAX under, under underpass or whatever. 
maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my memory is playing tricks on me. I don't know. Uh, Brad Pitt found a hat. So the the hat that he's wearing in this uh, scene, he wore. And this is the call. This is when they're uh, about to go to the the, the the hotel, and they're all um, at the house get ready to leave. He gets the you know Dick Ritchie gets the phone call before they're walking out that he got the role T.J. Hooker, and um, yeah, that's Brian Pitch wearing a hat in this scene, and the hat that he he's wearing, he found it um, on the boardwalk in Venice. He took it, washed it, and wore it for the rest of the film. So, <laughs> <laughs> just found it. Just like, eh, that's a good found hat. the hat, man. Just trying to be like his his character. So we see Blue Lose Man, uh, man. We see Blue Lose Men loading up, getting ready to seize their cocaine, as well as Elliot getting ready for a, you know, to wear a wire. Room full of cops who are counting on him to do a good job, promising his safety, saying that they've done this a thousand times before, and they're the best at this. So, okay, we'll see. The Ambassador Hotel. This is where they all arrive, and Clarence is carrying a loaded weapon that they discover awfully quickly. That Clarence don't mind. He likes to live dangerously. So uh, we got Floyd back at the house doing bong rips while listening to Sound Gardens outshined. When the Sicilians come in, rocking some shotguns. And I like this moment here. He asks if the guy, if you want to, you want to hit. And the guy just fucking cocks his shotgun. He's like, oh, oh never mind. No, yeah, go down, go down beach. You guys want to smoke a bowl or? Oh, go down Beachwood. <laughs> I know. I love the directions. He's like, you're gonna go right, then drive for a while, drive for a while, then go left. Like I just love the directions uh, Floyd's giving him. <laughs> it's a, it's a circle. Like he's intentionally leading them on a circle, so yeah. For the scene here, they, they used a temporary music track, but um, Tony Saccone, the editor, put "Outshine" by a Soundgarden in the scene, and uh, the result was a hit. And the test screenings and all said that uh, it had a good portion of music. And a lot of the, the portion of the budget went to obtaining rights, like I mentioned before, with the Elvis song. They did it here again with uh, Soundgarden, and uh, it worked out. I, I even though you know it's like a throwaway thirty-second scene, it's still funny. But like, it, it's background music at best, you know. Oh yeah, but still sets off that that vibe. The nineties have like. Soundtracks were a thing of the '90s and the '80s, but they just died off in the aughts. And now, no one pushes soundtracks or talks about soundtracks. It's like, yeah, it's a forgotten thing. So we get the meeting, Lee Donowitz's place. Um, yeah, like I said, um, Clarence is packing. Boris, the guy who finds the gun, looks familiar. He is familiar. It's Eric Allen Kramer from American Wedding. He was also Little Tim or Little John in uh, Robin Hood Men Tights. And also, uh, more recently-ish, 
He was the father when this Disney show called Good Luck Charlie that my daughter used to watch. And I used to always see the father in every episode. And I was like, hey, look, it's the guy from True Romance and American Wedding. Um, Yeah, I always remember him as Bear. Uh, like you said, American Wedding. Just that epic dance-off with uh, Stifler. Uh, I always remember that scene. That was a good scene. Yes, I love that scene. Um, where am I at here? So yeah, Lee wants Clarence to sell this to him this whole Dr. Chivago thing because whenever he hears about a deal that's too good to be true it usually is uh, so yeah he's selling the whole thing for 200k so that he can take it and uh, you know him and his, his lady they want to go they wanna... <laughs> I bullshitted him <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> I bullshitted he's him like, and Clarence. I just want to mention uh, no, I just want to say I, I wanted to mention Saul Rubinek is fucking owning the scene. He is great as uh, the big time producer. Oh God, yeah. in this scene, fucking fantastic. Like he he plays it to a T. Like that's exactly in my mind what I would think. Like a big time producer, just the way he says stuff. He's hilarious. It's Joel Silver in the scene. He's portraying Joel Silver, big Hollywood producer from the eighties, nineties. He produced the Predator, the Commando, the Matrix films. Uh, Tales from the Crypt he had a hand in the show that came back in the 90s like the, the, the Lethal Weapon films every project basically from Warner Brothers like you know and what kept his little engine going apparently now supposedly this is all hearsay is you know he liked the party so yeah I, but I, I just love uh you know, the lead character, because they're like, uh, we're working on body, you like the dailies? We're working on body bags, uh, too. What's the working title for it? And, See, I believe it's body bags, too. Like, body bags, too. He's like, oh, good taste. Got a better taste in my dick. Like, I just love yeah. <laughs> just his reaction <laughs> for just the unoriginality. He's like, what do you want to call that? What? He's like, what, what, what name did he like for the sequel? Uh, body bags, too. Um, yeah, so, yeah, like I mentioned, Joel Sober, Lee Donowitz, and according to a 2008 Maxim article, it is revealed that indeed the character Lee Donowitz was envisioned as a portrayal of producer Joel Sober by Tony Scott. The, uh, the two had just worked together on The Last Boy Scout, and Scott hated working with Sober during the, during the um, making of that film and they both had problems with Bruce Willis Silver even called the meeting I'm sorry Silver even called the making of The Last Boy Scout to be one of the three worst experiences of my life when Scott told Rubinick that he got Joel exactly right during his audition Rubinick had no idea who Joel Silver even was in the article Scott is quoted as saying the Hollywood satire is affectionate but Joel didn't talk to me for a long time after that. So rightfully so, if he's gonna pin, if he's gonna pinpoint him in that manner, which I'm sure he's not wrong. But you know why highlight that? I guess I can see it from both perspectives. That's all. So meanwhile, the Sicilians they arrive at the ambassador downstairs. Cut back to upstairs. Clarence is now in the bathroom talking to Elvis again when the cops bust in and hold the room up 
All is revealed here. Lee hears Elliot ask the cops if he can leave now. The Sicilians bust in the opposite side, and the entire place turns into one gigantic Mexican standoff. Because why <laughs> not? Just, it's a Tarantino production. Of course, and I just like the look on everybody's faces. Like, you know, the cops bust in. Obviously, they're dumbfounded. And then the Sicilians bust in, and then <laughs> just, like, everybody's look on their face is like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why are all these people here? And I just want to mention Kevin Gorga. Like, he looks like a fucking, like, doo-wop greaser in this movie. I love, I love his hair. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is fucking pure. Uh, so, yeah, the standoff, Tarantino fixture... Lee tears into Elliot. I treated you like a son and you stabbed me in the heart! Officer Dimes? Officer Dimes? What? Um, this has nothing to do with me anymore, right? Okay. So I'm just gonna leave. And you guys just settle this by yourselves, alright? Just shut up and stay the fuck put, Elliot. How do you know his name? Why the fuck did he know your name? You little piece of shit! You can forget about acting for the next 20 years. Your fucking career is over. Take your fucking SAG card and burn it! You little cocksucker! I treated you like a son! You fucking stabbed me in the heart! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Uber asking, or or is that perfect? <laughs> eh, I mean, he's probably testing some of the product at that point, so makes sense to me. It's it's I, lo- I love his delivery. Just give me more of that man, please. Give me more of that man. Unfortunately, we're not going to because uh, we're about to find out why. But I wish, I wish. So yeah, uh, the the shootout goes on, and Clarence comes out of the bathroom, and right off the bat gets shot in the eye, and uh, everyone's getting hit left and right, and just Jesus, dude, like the aftermath (laughs) with like the the feathers falling like snow, Chris Penn getting killed. For some reason, the coke. For some reason, the coke gets thrown up. Yeah, what the fuck explodes. Uh. Um, and I, I just want to say I like the fact that uh, Dick uh, Michael Rappaport's character just kind of runs out scot free. Like I do like the fact that he makes it out. Yeah. Um, but also I like how the scene keeps going, and it's kind of comical because like a few characters survive, like Chris Penn, uh, and then uh, Boris guy survive, and then like everybody's just dying. <laughs> like even if you think they're gonna survive, everybody just gets shot. Everybody pretty much dies. Uh, yeah, here we go. Okay, so yeah, everyone dies except for, uh, Dick, who runs out. Um. Think he's gonna make his call tomorrow at 7 a.m.? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) And yeah, Chris Penn dies. Yeah, Alabama kills him. He's the last cop, or was the last cop standing. So, they, uh, yeah, that's it. Not one cop notices Clarence and Bama leaving. Nope. Yeah, I know. Oh, well, gotta just gotta go with it for the sake of the story. So they flee to Mexico, where Alabama gives birth to a son, whom they named Elvis, and the film ends with her classic monologue 
about the film, which fades to black. Yeah, we, we talk about the dialogue. You know, it's just uh, it it, it kind of like complements her opening dialogue from the movie because this, and I'm I'm gonna, you know, kind of bring this point back to the conversation in a little bit with the categories. But I feel like this is Patricia Arquette's movie and not Clarence's. But again, more on that coming up. Now the filming, I mean the ending originally, Quentin Tarantino had Clarence dying in the gun battle, leaving Alabama a widow. However, he said that he intended Alabama to turn to crime and join up with uh, um, Mr. White, uh, kind of like from Reservoir Dogs that was mentioned before. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I can see what Tarantino would be going for, but I, I've always liked this. It's like, you know, you would almost kind of expect this movie, knowing it's a Tarantino film and knowing, you know, Clarence gets shot you would expect him to die almost like I expected him to die when I first watched it. Uh, but he didn't. And I, I like the happy ending. I, you know, it's an upper, like they get out with the money. They're in love, happy with a family. So I, I don't know. I like the ending. I like it ending on an up note. I know a lot of people say it's cliche or whatever, but it works for me because I like the characters and I like their chemistry, you know? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right. Um, uh... Yeah, that's that's it. That's that's true romance for you. All right, let's get to box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit two hundred and fifty thousand American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film was released on September tenth, nineteen ninety-three, from Warner Brothers Pictures. It opened up across 1,254 screens, coming in at number three, bringing in $4 million its opening weekend. Second weekend, however, it dropped down to fourth place, 34.6% drop-off. $2.6 million is where it brought in. Overall, the film grows total, six, I'm sorry, $12.6 million against a $12.5 million budget. Lost money. That's a shame. I think... Yeah, because if, if only they really did their marketing a little bit better, this would have been a bigger hit. You know, you had that Tarantino factor. I mean, you had... I don't know. So... Yeah, total growth. Yeah, it's okay. Let's... uh. It, Anything you want to comment on as far as the box office goes before we move on? No, I mean, you know, this film was definitely, did okay, but wasn't, like, highly revered. But I think as Tarantino's legacy built, you know, so many people like me went back later and watched it, and it definitely got more recognition and, you know, probably a lot more money back in the day as far as, like, home video type stuff. Because, you know, I just remember everybody talking about it uh, years later because, you know, obviously Tarantino was way more famous by the late '90s than he was now. Like you're then, you know, when this came out. Yeah, I I, I really don't have much to add. Uh, nothing more than I've already said. So, uh, for the sake of time, we're gonna move on now and uh, take a little walk to the critics' corner and see what everyone had to say about the movie. <laughs>
True Romance currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 93%, based on 55 reviews, with the consensus saying, fueled by Quentin Tarantino's savvy screenplay and a gallery of oddball performances, Tony Scott's True Romance is a funny and violent action jaunt in the best sense. Alright, it's got a meta score of 59 out of 100, based on 19 reviews, a cinema score of B minus and a three star rating from Ebes and a positive review remarking that the energy and style of the movie are exhilarating and that the supporting cast is superb. A roll call of actors at home in these violent waters. Uh, Christopher Walken, Brad Pitt, and Dennis Hopper, for example, um, in, in what he was talking about with the roll call of actors just you know jumping right in so Janet Maslin of New York Times wrote that True Romance uh, was a vibrant grisly gleefully um, a moral road movie directed by Tony Scott and dominated by the machismo of Quentin Tarantino who co-wrote this I'm, I'm sorry who wrote this before Directing Reservoir Dogs, it is sure to offend a good-sized segment of the movie-going population. Do you think movies still offend people? Uh, not anything like this. I mean, the line has been moved so far. Right. I mean, it would have to be really vile or just really hateful. Uh, like the last movie, I think I can think of that I heard offended people. It was a movie someone tried to make with like a special needs person, but like apparently they didn't have a special needs actor and it was just gone about. I forget what it was called. It was something about music or something like that, but it was just made very just ignorantly and not within the community and just like that type of stuff offends people. But yeah, as far as like language or violence or anything like that, now nah, it, it would take a lot nowadays oh, I'm sure it would I'm mm. alright let's uh let's see do I have anything else that mm, nope nope alright let's move on to pros and cons before I take on any job I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative now you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. All right, pros for me. I got a handful. The pacing is superb. Uh, you just eat up the acting and story with every viewing. It's just a good old-fashioned movie from the 90s. That's stuff that they don't make anymore, unfortunately. Um, the cast, the music, and the fact that it's just so fun to watch those are all pros in my book how about you well the first pro I have to mention uh, for me that works so well in this movie is the chemistry between Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette um, they, it is just excellent like I, I just completely believe them as a couple uh, you know I know they're different like obviously um, you know Clarence is a nerd comic book you know, into kung fu movies and Alabama as a character obviously isn't. 
is just a normal uh, girl trying to make it in the world. Like, you know, obviously didn't have a good upbringing, uh, right. becomes a call girl. Right. But she's willing to learn. And, you know, like they just meld together and they're just kind of magnifying just the chemistry between those two actors. Like, that's really what pushes this movie over. I mean, it would still be a good movie even if they didn't have the chemistry. But uh, to me, it pushes it to a different level. Uh, my next one has to be Tarantino's writing. Like, this is like the proto Tarantino. Like, it's not quite full on Tarantino dialogue, but it's still great. Like, it's still fucking good, you know? So it's just uh, super enjoyable. Um, love the dialogue. Like, just love listening to everybody talk. And then uh, the last one just has to be the acting. Uh, the cast, everybody does a great job in this movie. I mean, I wouldn't point out at anybody that I would recast or replace or say they did a bad job. I mean, just everybody brings it in this. So the cast is definitely my last pro. All right. And cons. Uh, I got two. Some moments are hard to watch. Looking at you, Patricia Arquette and James Gandolfini. <laughs> and um, you, you got to use caution when watching the big Sicilian scene. Like, you have to know what you're getting into. Otherwise, I feel like you're going to come out of this just feeling offended angry or all the above you know but uh that's just uh a couple things to call out you know pay attention with uh how about you what are your cons so it's funny uh this was actually one of your pros but for me i feel opposite i don't like the music in this movie um it's not terrible like it's not the worst thing but if i have to pick out a con of like anything i would maybe change in the movie I'm not a huge fan of the music. I think it kind of dates it. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Just, you know, I understand what they were going for with the happy-go-lucky type music. I just don't like it. I don't know. I just think it's, a to me, almost like a generic early 90s score or soundtrack. So, um, you know, obviously the music they licensed is good and fits pretty well. But as far as, like, the original stuff for the movie, I'm not a fan of at all. Right. And uh, my other con is definitely there's some questionable plot things that happen and character things that happen in this film. And, you know, it's just to keep the story rolling. But, you know, I know Clarence left in a rush, but like, would he really like he handed (laughs) Drexel his ID? Like, would you really not think about that? Maybe. (laughs) I mean, you just killed a guy like you left. Um, Also, like the whole thing I mentioned earlier with Gandolfini or, you know, the the mobster guy not looking under the bed for the suitcase. Like you really wouldn't think about that. Like there's just so many like little things. It It's not huge. Like it's a nitpick more than anything else, but there's definitely several things that you can kind of tell they need the plot to go on, <laughs> you know, or it might not necessarily make sense, you know? So, but just minor stuff. I mean, it's still an excellent movie. Like, you know, All right. um, let's move on then. To Mulligan Moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Uh, For me, uh, just nothing. I wouldn't change anything. I think this movie is perfect the way it is in my book. Um, And I'm not touching anything with this movie. Nothing about it with a 500-foot pole. None of that bullshit. Nope. It's good enough for me. How about you? 
Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, you know, it's two hours. I think the the pacing is perfect. Uh, I think the story flows well. I wouldn't change anything either. Yeah. All right, let's move on to finger licking good. <laughs> finger licking good. Dude, this is uh, uh, this is hard for me because, like I said, the movie is just it's a winner in my eyes, and I don't know where to break it down or where it can start. I mean, I'll tell you what, everything from, you know, and I've been saying this a lot the last couple of episodes, but like, it's the truth. I mean, these, I feel like these last batch of films have had uh, big third acts. And I think that this is no different. And this, that's, you know, the, the third act in this film. Sure, why not? I feel like that's like the best or some of the best acting going on, and, um, you know, um, yeah, so, all right, how about you, Corey? Well, for me, uh, you know, there's so many memorable scenes, the Gandolfini, Arquette, you know, fighting it out in the room, obviously the end drug deal, uh, but, Personally, for me, I have to pick the Sicilian scene with uh, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper. I've watched that scene just by itself so many times. Like, I'll watch the movie and then just rewatch that scene a couple times just because I love it. You know, I've never gone to film school, but I feel like you could watch that scene and learn a lot uh, from, you know, an acting point of view, from a directing and writing point of view. I just love that scene. It's just like two masters of Walken and Dennis Hopper going at it uh and it's just such a great scene i understand all the characters i understand exactly what's going on love love every minute of it yeah can it be offensive uh yes but uh i I don't know i just love that scene the most that stands out to me so i gotta pick that all right let's talk about our mvps all right now you might think i'm a little biased but i take my job as a presenter very seriously i will show no favoritism i am here to honor excellence the most valuable player is... Alright, so this is where I want to talk about who whose film this belongs to, uh, more or less. So my MVP is Patricia Arquette, Alabama. Um, and my defense, like to back it up, is just... This is her film. Not only did we get the opening... Her monologue bookends the film. Um... This movie is about just it, a, a strong. It, I'm trying to word this better because um, I feel like I'm doing a terrible job of, of you know. It's just it's a hundred percent her ride. We're on this adventure with her. Um, yeah, I know it's kind of like without Clarence, you know, there's no point, but it, but still, I feel like, yeah, this starts as a Clarence story, but all in all, it becomes, um, you know, Alabama's all far and away, especially towards the end and that whole end scene. And, you know, she comes out of it, that whole hotel massacre or shootout, you know, alive, you know, and, and, she's able to carry her man you know to safety and and help him bring him back to safety and that's why we get that last shot with him playing with their four-year-old on the beach 
and he's got the iPads, but, you know, she was able to, you know, get him out of that and and keep him afloat. And so, yeah, that's why I feel that this is Alabama's story more than it is Clarence's. And that's why my MVP award for this film goes to Patricia Arquette for her portrayal as Alabama. Yeah, so for me, uh, I have to agree with you. Patricia Arquette is definitely my MVP too. And Christian Slater's great in the movie. I think he does a good job. But I think he had the easier role because I think a lot of people watching this film are going to identify with his character just from the way it's written um, and the way the story progresses. I think, you know, a lot of people can identify with the outsider kind of loser and then he's kind of trying to stand up for his woman. I just think he has an easier time. He does a good job, but I have to pick Arquette because she walks such a fine line in this movie because it would be very easy for her character, even if all the dialogue was the same, I think it would be very easy for another actress to kind of make the character seem dumb or not genuine or just a damsel in distress uh, other than the Gandolfini scene. You know, it would be very easy for those things to happen. Um, But I think the way Arquette, just her innocence in this film, plays a big part of it. Um, Also, like I said, the genuine chemistry, like it doesn't ever come across that she's just trying to use Clarence or something like that. It always comes across that they're actually in love, which, you know, is why I like the movie. Um, Hmm. She just does it very well. Like she doesn't know about Kung Fu or all that stuff, but she wants to learn. You can tell she's genuinely interested in that stuff, uh, which is perfectly fine. Like, you know, it, uh, there's nothing I can't stand more than, you know, like if she would try to pretend like she knew about Sonny Chiba and all that stuff, you know, just to get with Clarence, like she's honest and pure and genuine and just the way our cat plays it, I think plays it perfectly where she comes off as a very likable character. Um, and I want to see them, uh, you know, end up together and I want to root for him the whole time. So I think she has the tougher time and I think she pulls it off. Let's see here where we at now. Let's do uh, final ratings, final thoughts. I say we uh tie a bow on it and put her to bed. All right, so I'm giving the film five stars. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. I think I gave it five stars when I reviewed it for episode number one, and nothing's changed. Uh, if anything, this film has grown on me more since that episode, and uh, y- yeah, I mean, I think I have pretty good. I made a pretty good point uh through throughout this uh episode talking about the movie of just everything that I love about it and how you know Tarantino is able to just create a witty you know screenplay with a basic story but there's more to it and it works and it's just a different kind of movie um it's it doesn't hold back it's unapologetic um you know, the cast is on point. It's just so much going for it. This movie, it just, you know, it, it's one of the best. It's one of the all-time greatest, in my opinion. And that's a strong statement, but an honest one. So, five stars for me. How about you? Yeah, so for me, it was pretty easy. Um, I have to give it four and a half stars. Um, you know, to me, it's top tier Tarantino. You know, not his best work. Um, but it's just such an enjoyable movie. I mean, if you asked me to describe this movie in one word, it would be cool. 
Like, it's just such a cool movie. Like, you have the awesome love story about, you know, the two people meeting together, and they make each other better. You know, that's what I like about this movie, too. Clarence uh, becomes more outgoing. He changes the way he dresses in the movie. And then, obviously, Alabama um, stops being a call girl and comes clean. And, you know, they just make each other better, and I think that's a true picture of a couple um, and that's why this movie, uh, stands out to me, uh, as well as all the other things I've said, as far as the Tarantino dialogue and the acting and the supporting cast. I mean, just like the little stuff like Sizemore, Chris Pettit as the, uh, cops. I love them. I mean, I'm pretty sure, uh, all the drugs they use in the movie, they just asked Tom Sizemore to like bring in because he was pretty fucking, it seemed like he was already high on that shit through the whole filming because him and Chris Pettit were just having so much fun. Um, along with all the other uh, supporting actors in the film. But yeah, to me, it's uh, always been a classic, always been one I enjoyed. I mean, I remember just wearing out the VHS of this back in the day, just re-watching it just because, like I said, it was so cool. And, you know, I always wanted to be Clarence, so and I think a lot of people feel the same way. So, yeah, always love this movie. Where are my things? Okay, all right. Well, that is... Uh... Uh, this episode is sponsored by Big Kahuna Burger. Because after you murder a pimp and all of his men, you're going to want to calm your ass down and wash the taste of fear out with a nice, juicy Big Kahuna Burger. Mmm, mmm, now that's a tasty burger. And that's going to be a wrap on True Romance, a film that still gets that film effect seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which, of course, is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on social media platforms uh, for, you know, announcements. Just follow us, goddammit. Fa- Facebook, Instagram, at The Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter, at Film Effect Pod. TikTok, at Film Effect Podcast. Send us an email, uh, thefilmeffectpodcast.gmail.com. We're on YouTube, although that's not a special IRL or that's not a special link, um, not yet at least. The um, the links in the description for that one, but yeah, um, subscribe to that. We got a bunch of clips posted um, that I'm actually working on. Some stuff coming up, kicking around some ideas. So uh, yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's 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 a little something now, but it's gonna grow and become something even bigger. Uh, we always appreciate hearing from you guys. It's been a while, so let's try and get a couple reviews in from this episode, shall we? Ratings, reviews, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, or the thefumeffectpodcast.com slash reviews. We want to hear from you guys, please. We want to know how we're doing. Let us know. We'll never know if we don't hear from you guys. Uh, it's June. It's Pride Month. Got a new Pride shirt out there for, um, you know, the, the LBGTQ community. Got a couple of designs one from last year one from this year brand new design that my daughter approved and uh yeah means a lot so check that out um fewer cast is friday tomorrow episode 100 drops the shining oh yeah that's right and uh yeah other than that we're done here on behalf of myself and Corey, thank you for listening this has been the thumb effect podcast take care now bye 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 everybody Amid the chaos of that day, when all I could hear was the thunder of gunshots, and all I could smell was the violence in the air, I look back and am amazed that my thoughts were so clear and true. 
That three words went through my mind endlessly, repeating themselves like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. And sometimes Clarence asked me what I would have done if he had died, if that bullet had been two inches more to the left. To this, I always smile, as if I'm not going to satisfy him with a response. But I always do. I tell him of how I would want to die, that the anguish and the want of death would fade like the stars at dawn, and that things would be much as they are now, perhaps. Except maybe I wouldn't have named our son Elvis. This concludes our broadcast day.